I'm Toshi Regan. And I'm Adrian Marie Brown. Here, we just need to clarify that what you're about to hear was taped before the coronavirus pandemic and before the most recent popular uprisings against the police murder of Black people. From episode seven on, we'll be talking about the book explicitly in this current context. For these first few episodes, we talked about the work in the context of all the usual mess. So be it, see to it. (laughs) So be it, see to it. All right. Hello, 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 and welcome to Chapter 2 of the Parables Podcast. I'm Toshi Regan. And I'm Adrian Marie Brown. We have done one chapter of this and wanted to just let you know, like we had questions at the end of that chapter, and we want to just remind folks that we're not approaching this as if there is one right answer to any of these questions or one right way to move through this content, but rather these are things to be contemplated. This is stuff that that Octavia was contemplating and inviting us into. All that you touch, you change. All that you change, changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. So now we're going to dive into chapter two. And let's start with a bit of a synopsis. This is a packed chapter. Yeah, this, this, uh, (laughs) <laughs> this chapter does um, all kinds of things. Yes. Um, if chapter one, like, scared me when I first had it, like, chapter two just, like, really gets gets everything going. Locks in the terror. Yeah, it does. Yes. So uh, she starts us off. A gift of God may sear unready fingers. Mm. Earth see the books of the living, and it is Sunday, July 21st, 2024. And... She just is in a state of declaration at this point. You know, she she lets it be known that um, her father, the Baptist minister, who is the kind of unofficial mayor of the Walden cul-de-sac inside the town of Robledo, which we find out um, in California, uh, about 20 miles north of Los Angeles. Yeah. She loves this man. He's her favorite person. But she is, she's like, no, we're not on the same page with this. And uh, she allows her father to baptize her. And she says, I let my father baptize me in all three names of that God who isn't mine anymore. My God has another name. And uh, I just, I just love it. I think it's so powerful. 15 years old. My God has another name. Yeah. Yeah. And she says, at least three years ago, my father's God stopped being my God. Yeah. So she's been like, since she was 12, walking with her belief systems inside. Yeah. And we get to learn more about the community that she's in. Yeah. And we get to know more about her dad. Yeah. This Um, is a bunch of world building here. Yeah. uh, That he had his own church and his church um, got burned down and. And so they are going to one of his friends' church, Reverend Robinson, where they will be baptized. And it's a big deal. It's a massive deal to leave the to leave their gated community yeah. and to go anywhere. When you when she's having the dream and uh, in different parts um, early on, she describes the wall that they've built 
and it's it's a big significant wall like and everybody needs a key to open a gate and so um and people are petrified about going outside the wall and there are a few people who have to to go do jobs Lauren's father is one of them once a week he has to go um he teaches at a school he has to go to the university and and be there in person yeah um a lot of fear of of children going out into the like no child in that community is allowed to go um outside by themselves at all um so to get a group together to you know pay for the water that's going to be used during the baptism um he like offers to baptize other kids yeah, so they can so they can afford this <laughs> they can afford which is it wild i mean it just shows how important you know we we're learning so much about the scarcity of the world and the the terror the fear-based reality of the world but also how important this is to him and to these other parents um still to be like oh we're offering you this baptism like this is something that we think is worth risking your lives for yeah um and you know they say this is where we learn that technology like go in groups and go armed like that's the way that they move through the world at this point if they're outside those gates and what are some of the things that you see outside the gates that really stood out to you or stand out to you well um you know i think we'll get like a little bit later on down the line but you know one is like the introduction of um lauren's hyper empathy yes and so um Lauren's hyperempathy is basically a syndrome that she has. She got this syndrome um, from her birth mother who was taking this drug that was invented to help you basically have more brain space while you're you're in college and you're studying, kind of the way um, speed was used, like keep you awake, keep you in. um, in, Like Adderall uh, and stuff now, yeah. Something crazy. So um, the result is that a lot of the children of, um, of people who took this drug end up with this hyperempathy syndrome. And what it does is they experience um, violent, physical violence that they see. Um, they, yeah. ex- they experience also physical pleasure that they see, but there's just not that much going on. Right. That yeah. <laughs> Pleasure is not the structure of the yeah. society here. So that she... Um, and she experiences it as if it's happening to her, like her skin. Before she gets her period, her skin actually would bleed if she saw someone else bleeding. Yeah. And then once she got her period, it's... Which I love that little detail that I'm like, yeah. oh, and then once she got her period, like that no longer happened, but she still felt a lot of the other things like like she was being stabbed or harmed. Yes. Yes, exactly. And she and she also starts to learn a system of of how to protect herself in it. Yeah. And so she's like, you know, she can take a lot of pain. Yeah. You know, so she's built these systems, these ways of moving, these ways of absorbing levels of pain. Yeah. Um, but if you can imagine, like, why would people build a wall like yes. this? Because what's outside the wall is completely intolerable. Yes. Like it's that's right. it's just not a state of being any of us can tolerate. Yeah. It is is vicious, is violent. There's a lot of death. There's a lot of anguish. There's a lot of people with nothing to do there that are just 
alive. Yeah. And this is where a lot of our class issues show up. Yes. Um, because Lauren's community is an upper middle class yeah. cul-de-sac. Everybody pretty much owns their homes. And so that's a community that had the resources, you know, I imagine to go to the, you know, Hanning Joe's, which is like, I don't know, not really Home Depot. It's like, yeah. like maybe like a Walmart. It just has everything. Yeah. You know, it has like building supplies everything and store, food yeah. and like camping gear. It just has everything in it. And um, buy what you need to like start to build um, a structure that would keep, you know, people from entering into your community. Mm-hmm. Um, so people who are like, you know, middle class, down, you know, who don't live in walled communities is to be constantly under attack. That's right. You know, it's just to... And in total misery. Like folks, you know, I think the other piece of this that is so devastating for me every time I read it is the normalization of rape in this out outer world. One of the first things we see is a woman, just a woman naked and dazed walking mm-hmm. through the streets um, followed a few minutes later by a seven-year-old girl running naked with with blood on her thighs, mm-hmm. and I remember the I remember the first time I read those descriptions, and just feeling like oh, like rape has been taken out of the the realm of darkness and secrecy, and it's just out in daylight, and it's not you know that I think that we don't experience so much rape and and sexual assault and child sexual assault and child abuse and sex trafficking and all of that now, but there's still some small coverage of secrecy. There's some small sense of it happening behind closed doors. And what Octavia puts in here is that like at the rate we're going that, that you can no longer cover it. Like it has to be everywhere. Mm -hmm. That's the way I read that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's so fascinating now in this political context to be a couple years into the me too movement unfolding and feeling like in some ways it's a direct, you know, there's, to me, there's a conversation there around like we're in a crisis of women's being raped and assaulted and kidnapped and children being trafficked. And we're in, in this moment where it, it is isn't not, it's not an unlikely future. Um, yeah. Right. That this would be one of the major things that's happening outside any sa- sacred or safe space. Yeah. And I think you get to the last of people like trying to intercede. You know, she has this one section where she says her, um, Corey tells her that they saw this woman and they tried to to help and then the woman almost killed them. So they were like, all right, nah, we can't do that. Yeah. Um, And I think that, you know, it, it, it just becomes like, oh, it's crazy, like to live you know, without a wall to try to protect yourself. Yeah. Like that's that's the times that you're in. I think it's also important to notice here that her father is like the relationship he has to her hyper empathy syndrome mm-hmm. because he's like aware that this is something that's going on, but also like you can control that, like, or you need to learn how to control that. Um, and, but there's so much love and tenderness between them. And it's a really, I'm really grateful for the father daughter relationship they have here because her birth mother died giving birth to Lauren. That's one of the things we learn is in this chapter is that her mother died giving birth to her. Mm -hmm. And then, so she's raised like her father is, is her blood parent. And then Corey has come along and she has a pretty good relationship with Corey, all things considered, but Corey came along and, 
But so she and her dad have this loving relationship. She's on his radar in a major way. He's really paying attention to her. He takes her seriously. And he has a massive belief system that sort of shapes everything about how he moves, right? And then he, so it's such a beautiful thing because you're like, yeah, you believe something. And then this child comes along who doesn't fit into that belief system. And how do you, what is the right relationship there? And one of the ways that she doesn't fit in is that she has this hyper empathy syndrome. And so he's looking at her. He keeps turning around as they're on this bike ride and she's letting us see how horrible this world is. And he's turning around and kind of making sure like, are you okay? And there was something in that that's just like um, the tenderness of what parents right now Mm -hmm. have to contend with of like, I'm bringing children into the world who I know are going to have to see this. Right. Yeah, I mean, well, we got these concentration camps going on. Right now. Yeah, right now. And we got, um, you know, I feel like it's the part that's making me think that, you know, we can really just keep diving down into the wretched is that we have way too many conversations about this stuff. Yeah. Like, I'm like, how is how is it even a conversation that you can keep children in cages and not give them, you know, clothes and not keep them warm and not feed them. Like what, I just wonder like, what, what, how is that even like, when did that become, when did, when did y'all just decide as you're running, like as everybody's running for office, I need them to say concentration camp every day. Yes. Like when do we say like, it's okay not to talk about these children and not to talk about, you know, how many um, men running for office want to like literally legally make rape not be a crime. Right. You know, to take right. a, take the woman's body and be like, well, if she gets pregnant when she's raped, then she's co-parenting with her rapist and he has all these rights. Like the, <laughs> the abortion conversation is just outrageous, you know. Like, it's outrageous. I'm like, how many times do we need to really, like why is this, like we talk about it so much and I think that, um, without like making the decisions of no, that's right. Um, that that's that it's up for debate, and that you know people think when you bring it up, you're talking politics and not just exactly. talking. No, like what kind of world do you exactly. want to live in? Yeah, you know. And I think that I mean it's a good moment to say part of why it feels um, important to do this podcast right now <laughs> is because the election is coming, and we're in that moment where the everything starts to orbit around the election, right? Like the issues, the conversations, the news, it's all like, what are these different people saying about what they're going to do? And I agree with you. I think that in so many ways, these parables give us a really beautiful checklist of like, here's the things that you want to make sure any of these uh, folks who are running for office are actually able to speak to coherently and not speak to, you know, I've really gotten away from like, I'm not interested in how beautiful you can make the words. I'm really interested in how tangible you are with your solutions. Like, how, can you talk about these things? Not just, because I'm like, it is outrageous that this is happening. And so I want to hear from someone like, how are you going to actually stop this from happening? Right? Like, do you understand how to play those games? And I, I think that that's going to be an important piece because as you'll learn as we go into the text, so much of this is possible because of what's happening at the level of governance yes. in the country. Yes. And- um, the systems that we ele- that we let go of, that we don't protect, mm-hmm. um, that we get confused and think 
certain things are bad, like, I don't know, socialism, like sharing. Yeah. Um, and it's so weird because in this time, like, it's such a big deal if something goes wrong. Um, there isn't any body that's coming to help you unless or you have money it. to pay for it. Yeah. So it reminds me of Cuba when she talks about, you know, um, we'll get into this more, but when she talks about like, Oh, what is it like to live here? It's like, we, we fix everything. Yeah. We keep it, we fix it, we make it work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's that, that level of, uh, and you know, and it would be one thing if that was your government, right? Because then the government shouldn't take all your money right? because it's like, no, we're going to do all of these things for all of us. So, That's right. Because then you'd be like, oh, yeah, and like we can actually fix everything ourselves and we can, you know, communities can come up with, with plans and things like that. But, you know, it's heartbreaking to think right now how much we pay into a system. Um, and I think it's great to have systems around water and air and, you know, what our, um, our garbage is and uh, what is, you know, how we should operate. Um, but there's such misuse, yeah. you know, for the, you know, um, personal riches of, you know, politicians and their partnerships. That's right. And I think that that, you know, we as a people, we can easily slip into this, this near future where, we don't have access to those offices. That's right. You know, and That's where right. we don't care to vote for them at all. And yeah. so that there's a continuation of abuse because we don't we don't participate in it. And I think there might be a good question in there. Yeah. You know, around what, you know, right from where you are right now, what are ways, what are systems that you would want to shift what are what are systems that we um or that you're participating in right now that you really understand might be broken systems and what are solutions that you think you could get your hands on one is the uh plastic water bottles the o- in the ocean yeah um the suffocation of the oceans. Yes. And I was thinking about this because so many g- cool art places that we yeah. show up into, like, I mean, right away they hand you like a plastic bottle of water. Yes. And I think if you just outlawed them at hotels, yeah, you know, you would be like, if, yeah, it's like, you oh, would, where's you the would, solution? What's the domino? Yeah. Like the first What's place the, where you could do something. Um, there's this great, um, scholar at University of North Carolina named uh, Todd Bendor and we did a short film with him that I hope will be out next year and you know he talked about what people in America are used to as uh, incentives to make changes it's like either an incentive or an emergency That's and right. um, he talked about other parts of the world where they say um, this is what we're going to do mm-hmm. because it's cool. Um, just watching one of his friends, um, I forget the country, but where they they separate their recyclables like on a level that's like the color of glass. Yes. And they recycle so that it good. So actually can be done right. Yeah. And they recycle good things, right? So um, 
they already know like plastics are terrible recyclable but glass is a a good one and aluminum is a good one and then everything is super clean and super whatever and he's like you know in america we never do that no (laughs) i mean we just i just had this experience this past weekend i was at a training and the whole training they had set it up for us to have recycling compost trash and then we were separating everything. And I noticed, you know, oh, we're, we're not good at like rinsing off stuff that needs to go and recycling and just basic shit. But then on the last day, we're like kind of clearing everything out. And the guy who ran the building was there and and he took one of the things away, like the recycling or something. I was like, oh, I've got one more thing. And he's like, it's all going to go in the trash. And like he just said it to me. And I was like yeah. devastated. But I was also like, right, that that is the – that's the thing is like so much of the time – what we're being offered as solutions are these false placebo type solutions. Yeah. It's like, I'll make you think that that, cause you seem to be worried about that. Yeah. And it's like, my worry is not the thing that needs to be fixed. Um, it, you know, I'm, I'm terrified because we're actually participating in this destructive process, but I want to name here, and maybe this can be something that emerges more and more with the podcast too, is the group movement generation in California, mm-hmm. because I feel like they do a really beautiful job both of naming this kind of false solution paradigm that we're in where we're like so committed to doing surface level bullshit liberal things that don't actually change anything and how much harder it is to get people to engage in actual viable solutions. And, you know, their context is we have to learn how to make the real solutions we need politically possible. And I think that to me, that's so much of how I think of the, like why engage in the, ongoing political system Mm. is because we have to make our survival politically possible. Like we Mm -hmm. have to be in that work. So I wanted to come back into this chapter um, uh, because there's a little bit more that happens. You know, she talks about getting her period here and she talks about getting this baptism. And in this period, she just has such a sophisticated understanding of what God is to her father and to other people. Um, and she says here, it's just another name for what makes us feel special and protected. Mm. Um, which I just feel like she's able to see, you know, these systems that it's like her parents are inside these systems. Her neighbors are inside these systems. And one of the neighbors that's um, with her and on this journey with her is also um, someone that she's been hooking up with. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And we start to get this picture of like, oh, um, she talks about this that like she's already having sex Mm -hmm. and she says it in a very um, no nonsense kind of way. It's just sort of like, you know, there's not a lot of pleasure out here, but sex is one of the few pleasures that I have access to. And as the preacher's kid, I don't get to have a lot of sex, but I am doing it, right? <laughs> Which I just think is so great. <laughs> like she just sort of like, you know, I'm 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 actually I am doing sex, but so her lover, Curtis, is one of the young people who are on this journey. And it just also makes me think of how often, you know, like I remember having those experiences of like being at the church gathering whatever and having somebody that I had just made out with (laughs) and like the whole experience of like how kids have this life or young people have these lives that we think they're not going to have for another 10 years or something after we've, you know, what we've decided in our head is a safe time for them to be experimenting with these things. And she's just like, no, I'm already navigating intimacy. I'm already navigating those things. And every time I read this book and I'm reminded, I'm like 15, 
Like 15 is, is young and not young. Like it really is at that precipice um, where you can have a sophisticated worldview and also you're trying to learn how I navigate relationship. But I think one of the political lessons from this book is be having real conversations about the real world with your children. Um, like make sure that they are prepared to be 11 and 12 and 15 and 18 in the real world rather than what I think religion can often do, which is deny that children are going to grow up until they hit 18 or 21 or something. And it's undeniable. And by that time, it's already too late often to actually make sure they have the tools. We have the tools that we need. Um, are there any other things here that you want to make sure we touch on before? I have a few more questions that I wanted to throw in. Yeah, I want to like drop in on that. She loves the book of Job. Book of Job. Yes. <laughs> and she is. I mean, in some ways, the parables are books of Job. <laughs> they are. <laughs> so, yes. But I love um, where she's like, in the book of Job, God says he made everything and he knows everything. So no one has any rights to question what he does with any of it. Okay. okay. That works. <laughs> I mean, that's the <laughs> essence. I feel like when you first come up against your inner anti-authoritarian and yeah. you're just like, oh, you created a system in which no one can ever question anything you do? Hmm. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and we we definitely put Job in the opera, the song. Yes. Um, it is so, and we put it in there in a really shady place. <laughs> Good for you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so some questions that I want to leave folks with for this chapter. One is, how how is religion held in your family? Is there an aligned belief system? Are there multiple systems of belief? Um, is it a clear operating system? Are you given a lot of room? But like, how is or was religion held in your family? And when was the first time you questioned the worldview that your parents held, whether it was a religious worldview or a worldview around class or a worldview around race or a worldview around right relationships or any other aspects of it? And what is the first worldview that you questioned? And I wonder, Toshi, I'd love to hear your answer to that question if you, you know, because I'm like, I grew up in a military environment where I think I started questioning worldview around the sixth grade. Um, and it was like, I think uniforms are not a good idea. And like, that was one of the first things that like kind of clicked to me. Like, I don't think everyone should be wearing uniforms and marching around wearing the same thing. Like, I think that does something to the soul. Um, and hijinks ensued from there until <laughs> I reached, um, you know, revolutionary state. But for you, you know, I think I kind of romanticize. I'm like, oh, your mom was like a radical and you were growing up in this musical environment. And like, but I'm, I'm like, but of course, I'm sure you still had to question worldview. Uh, my mom was awesome, is awesome. Yeah. Um, you know, my mom sang to me every single night. Mm -hmm. And um, and I still, you know, remember and know, I think, most of the songs she sang to me. And uh, she, I, and I also was, like, in a house um, where my mom and me and my brother we're on the first floor and Vincent Harding and Rosemarie Harding. Uh, um, we're, upstairs. we're upstairs. And Rachel uh, Harding is like my first friend. Okay. And our brother, I mean, we were little. We were little, yeah. little, like three. Um, And we were in Atlanta. And I think I 
was raised by all of these um, civil rights activists. Yeah. You know, so this is like, you know, the Freedom Singers, and this is like, they're in their early 20s. They're like 24 now and 25. And my mom had been um, in the Freedom Singers at like 19. Right. And my with my dad, and he, he had left by then. So I now I look back and I'm like, oh, I witnessed the transformation between like a lot of these young SNCC people, you know, in some ways coming out of the the field, so to speak, like out of that part where they were traveling all over the place. And some people were were doing that, but like actually starting to manifest like a structure in their lives. So like my mom went back to school. Um, She she went to Spelman because she got kicked Uh out of Albany State for... um, (laughs) joining the revolution the, the southern freedom movement but it but the the vibration was so deep you know and um and i think my my worldview was like that the world was 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 on our street yeah um we were really near black colleges it felt like there was a marching band yeah. parade every day that black panthers would march down our street um aretha franklin released <laughs> amazing grace like all of these things happen it, it was like um a great like you know a great place down the street was uncle juju who you know what did um sculptures there was a drum troupe and so i think wow like <laughs> yeah it was amazing it was amazing <laughs> it was it really was and my and you know it's all centered around my mom and i think one of the the first practices i remember is there's two. One is um, Kwanzaa, uh-huh. and my mom, uh, my mom put Kwanzaa and Christmas. You know, they kind of were like together. Um, but she said, "Christmas people who love you come over in the middle of the night and leave you gifts." And then Kwanzaa was for us to each make gifts for each other that we felt like um, would help the other person or that somebody Aww. needed. Um, and so those were like, you know, those, those were great practices. Those are great practices. The other one was like, she really stuck to that January 1st, we're going to cook some chitlins thing. And I remember like every New Year's Day really just being horrified and that (laughs) she would try to make me, um, eat chitlins. Uh Uh-huh. Was that a first point of resistance for you? She didn't do it. I just would be afraid she would. Oh, wow. Every year because they smell so bad. Oh, my God. So I was like, please don't ever make me do this. But she would make me bacon. She's like, love. Yeah. Bacon is always love. Yeah. (laughs) Bacon is always love. My mom's so good. Um, So, yeah, I thought like three, four, five. The first time I really remember myself in a moment of resistance was when Martin Luther King died. Mm His, the you know, funeral, iconic funeral, the passing of his, his casket came down our street and our house was used as a, a point for the National Guard while they were, wow, you know, um, and I was coming from my daycare or something and it was thousands of people. Yeah. And I was like, why, why are there so many people here? And they were like, well, Martin Luther King was killed. And I said, shit. And was the first, I said, shit. And I was, yeah, I was four years old. 
Wow. And I was really upset. Yeah. Yeah. You understood that. I understood that completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, well. So, so yeah, I think having those questions, having those questions in community, right, is like, how do we know? Because I think that it's trying to see the water you're swimming in. Like, how do we know what our worldview is? At what point do we start to notice it? I Now I look back and I'm like, there's so many things that I can see that were like, oh, I went to Department of Defense schools. I was give, doing the Pledge of Allegiance. And I was being, patriotism was being developed inside of me and cultivated inside of me that I was supposed to be really proud to be part of a military household and family. Mm. Um, But my parents were also thinking for themselves and it has given me so much space. Like the more, you know, Octavia's work in so many ways is about that. Like Mm -hmm. you do not know who you're going to end up in the apocalypse with. You do not write anybody off for any reason. And I think about that all the time because I'm like, oh, I think from outside people are like, oh, your parents are in the military. Like, check. I already know what all that means. Right. And what I know from being inside that household is like beliefs are a constantly shifting and growing thing that everyone is wrestling with at all times. And it's never too late to have an awakening. And it's never too late to learn something if you're a curious person. And my parents were curious people. And I think that my worldview underneath anything else structurally was curiosity. Mm. Um, And that curiosity sometimes led me towards what my parents believed and often led me away from what they believed. Um, But it still drives me. It's like, I'm actually not really interested in an experience if I don't feel genuine curiosity around it. Like if it all feels pre-chewed and everyone's already got their position stated and all that, I'm like, there's not much room to be curious about what's next year. And the places where I get very excited is when I'm like, this is almost unformed or this is a chaotic system. And I'm like, now there's there's things here to wonder about. So a couple of other questions. Um, one is, so one of the beautiful things I think about science fiction is that, you know, Walida and I talked about this for Octavia's Brood, that the best science fiction, the visionary fiction is not utopian and it's not dystopian. Uh, because those things always coexist. That whenever someone's living in a utopian moment, there's someone else who's living in a dystopian moment. And I feel like this is a great example of that, that like there's people living in this gated community totally in terror, but from outside that gate for, you know, one of these people who's walking around dazed and naked and has none of the supplies that they need, they would look at that gate and be like, oh, those people are living the good life. They're safe. They're, you know, um, maybe they're even enjoying their life. And I think there's a big question to me in that of when I read this text, I'm like, God, this is so horrible. And then I think a question to sit with is, is this actually better or worse than your current reality, right? And where are you inside of this current reality? Because there's nothing, like even the hardest stuff in this book, there's nothing in this chapter, there's nothing in this book that is not actually happening right now, that's not unfolding right now. So- I would love for folks to be in those conversations politically. It's like, where are we in the class stratus of this book, right? Mm-hmm. Um, another question, who in your current political context holds the labor of empathy? So in this book, it's like, oh, Lauren's like hyper empathy. And a lot of other folks seem to be kind of numbed out. 
which I also feel like, <laughs> you know, like that's how I feel walking around is I'm like, why isn't everyone crying and screaming and gnashing their teeth and tearing their clothes off with grief? Like this world. And then, you know, folks are like, I'm chilling, you know, I was just watching like, <laughs> right. Um, America's got talent or something. Um, <laughs> and it's like all good. And who's holding the work of empathy? Mm -hmm. um, that's a great question. And then I wanted to just represent that beautiful question that emerged. What are the systems that you know are not working? that you currently participate in and what are sol solutions that you could get your hands on. Um, and then, Ooh, Kat dropped on a good one. Octavia says, so what is God? Just another name for what makes you feel special and protected. What is that for you right now? What is that thing that makes you feel special and protected right now? Are those things real or are they illusions? Um, and Kat talks about how in our current society, Oh, that's so good. Kat, um, white supremacy, capitalism, the nationalism of being an American might be some of those things that make people feel both special and protected. And um, yeah, so be in an examination of what those those things might be for you. Awesome. Chapter two. Boom. Boom. There's a new world coming. Everything gonna be turning over. Everything gonna be turning over Where you gonna be standing when it comes There's a new world coming Thank you for listening to our show. Octavius Parables is hosted by Toshi Regan and Adrian Marie Brown. It's produced by Kat Aaron. Music for Octavius Parables podcast. Always see the stars written and performed by Toshi Regan. There's a new world coming performed by the cast and musicians of Octavia E. Butler's Parable of the Sower, the opera lead vocalist Shana Smalls. Written by Bernice Johnson Regan with additional lyrics by Toshi Regan, both based on the novel Parable of the Sower by Octavia E. Butler. And our show art is by Krista Franklin. You can find us on Twitter at OParables and sustain our show by becoming a patron at patreon.com backslash OParables. Please share this podcast with anyone you think it would be useful for. So be it. See to it.